And thank you for coming. My name is Francisco Panizza, and I'm reader in Latin American politics in the government department, and I'll be chairing this public lecture. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Tom Feiling, who actually studied here at the LSE in the like 90, 87, 90? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, 87, 90, so it's an alumni uh, from the BBC, from, from the LSE, sorry. Um, and the topic of his talk today, which is, has a rather unassuming title of short walk from Bogota that you assume is a kind of rambler's guide to Colombia, uh, I think is quite different because what Tom does in his book is to witness the extraordinary complex and contradictory change and very rapid change that Colombia has been undergoing over the last two or three years and is still going. And I still, I think it's really appropriate that we have this conversation today at the very date that peace talks are beginning in Colombia between the FARC and the government. So I don't want to take any more time from Tom's presentation. I will introduce him and ask him to talk for about half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we'll open the floor. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Francisco, for the introduction. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. I'm here this evening to talk a little bit about my book, Short Walks from Bogota. The title, um, as several people have said, well, the book doesn't seem to be about short walks from Bogota. They're actually quite long walks from Bogota. I was, when I came up with that idea for the title, I was trying to be ironic and suggesting that you might be able to go walking around Colombia in the same way that, um, I don't know if any of you know about Wainwright's walks in the Lake District, and I imagined a front cover with someone with an old-fashioned backpack setting off into Colombia. I mean, you still can't travel around Colombia with the, quite that amount of ease, uh, and I think the irony was slightly lost uh, so perhaps, you know, if there is a second edition, I might have to change the title to Long Walks from Bogota. Um, anyway, this evening, um, I'm going to address uh, how, really how my perceptions of Colombia have changed over time. Uh, I first went to Colombia in 1999, and obviously I was back there uh, in 2010 to, to write this book. No, 2011 to write this book. Um, and then I did, I was hoping that in the second half of the talk I'd have time to talk a bit about the peace talks uh, and how I see some deficiency, I think, in how people understand the FARC. Um, but I don't know if we're going to have time to get on to the, the meatier side of the discussion. Perhaps, you know, when it comes to questions and answers... Uh, after 40 minutes or so, uh, we can touch on that because I think by the time I've got through telling you how I, you know, what I understand about Colombia has changed over time, we might find the time's up, but let's see. Um, so I, I actually took my first uh, introduction to Latin American politics here at the LSE with George Phillips, who um, I know wrote a book with Francisco a while ago. Um, and I think looking back that having been at the LSE, uh, it, it did encourage um, a real lifelong love of politics and history and current affairs. So 
my career has been quite, uh, it's changed a lot over time. I've done a lot of different jobs, but I've always kept up the reading. And I think it's worth noting now that I'm here back at the LSE that I think I have the LSE to thank for that. Um, I'm not uh, a lecturer. I'm not an academic. Um, I'm not really a journalist. Uh, and until recently, I wasn't a writer either. Most of my career has been, um, well, I spent quite a long time teaching English as a foreign language in uh, Colombia, among other countries. Uh, and then I got into documentary production, and it was really when I felt that I'd exhausted uh, the possibilities for making documentary that I wanted to make in this country. That's what spurred me to go to Colombia in the first place. So I'd like to start just by telling you a little bit about my initial impressions of Colombia when I went there in, in 1999, because I, I think the overall structure I'd like to give to what I'm saying this evening is really showing how different layers of understanding, rather like peeling an onion, uh, over time I've, I've appreciated different aspects of, of Colombia. So um, as I say, I first went there in 1999, um, after a couple of months in Venezuela, I went there to learn Spanish and spent a, a summer traveling around Venezuela. And the last month, I, I hooked up with some fellow backpackers and we went over the border um, at Maicao and on the north coast of Colombia. And we traveled down uh, to Cartagena, which, you know, if it, now that Colombia is opening up as a tourist resort, anyone interested in going on holiday Colombia to Colombia will realize that Colombia is the jewel in, um, in the Caribbean crown in Colombia. Um, and of course, you know, I, I loved all the colonial charm and all the, the romance of the history of that part of the world. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Cartagena was the chief slaving port for a lot of the Spanish colonies. Um, and I think, looking back on it, I remember also someone saying how uh, Francis Drake, from a Colombian point of view, was regarded as a terrorist. You know, in, in England, he's regarded as a national hero. Um, and I think drawing out that theme of how uh, terrorism is perceived, uh, looking back on, on that part of Colombia, in a sense, it still is quite a colonial part of the world. It's arguable that not much has really changed in 200 years. That's a provocative thing to say. But when you look at what Cartagena is today, it's, it is a tourist city. It's primarily a, a tourist city for Colombians. But the old part of, of Cartagena is essentially owned by people with homes in Bogota and Medellin. Um, and on the outskirts of Cartagena, you have one of the largest shanty towns in the world, uh, named the Barrio Nelson Mandela, funnily enough, um, full of people who have been displaced uh, because of the violence along the coast create this huge shanty town. Um, I also remember after Cartagena going to the, the, um, the, uh, the national park, Tyrona. This too is on a lot of the, the backpacker trail. A lot of young Europeans and Americans you'll find going to Tyrona. And it really is an idyllic part of the world. It has everything that tourists would want. It's um, on the Caribbean. It's completely undeveloped, unspoiled. Um, but again, it was interesting that over time, as you, as you get to know the place a little bit better uh, and stay a little bit longer than most tourists stay, and you start to find out about the, the, the local politics at a local level uh, in these coastal towns. In the case of 
Tyrona, the director of the National Park, several years ago now was, was killed by local um, paramilitaries when she tried to, tried to stop um, cocaine traffickers using that as an embarkation point to smuggle cocaine up into the Caribbean and up towards the States. Um, uh, something else from Tyrona that I remember, which I think gives some indication of the, uh, the, the enormous potential of Colombia, not just as a tourist resort, but in lots of other senses, is uh, the Andes ends well short of the Caribbean, but there's a single mountain that springs up in the Parque Tyrona. Just about 30 miles from the coast, you have a mountain almost, I think it's about 16,000 feet high. Uh, there's no other mountain like that in the world. It rises from tropical lowlands right up into permanent snow cover. Um, and the heart of, of that mountain, there are four tribes that have lived there for thousands of years. There aren't, I, I met very few people who had actually ventured really into the park to, to find out um, about those, the cultures of those people who have lived there. It was just around the edges that you saw some tourist infiltration. Um, but as a tourist in Cartagena, Something that I noticed, because Colombia hasn't had much tourism uh, for the last 30, 40 years, I think as a, a tourist in Colombia, you don't get that sense which you get in a lot of places where tourism is well established of, you know, an official welcome and a lot of smiles, um, but quite a cynical attitude to tourists of people perhaps feeling a little bit cowed or a little bit resentful. One of the beauties of Colombia was that people regarded outsiders very much on a level. I think that was a real strength of Colombia, that there was no, uh, there was no sense of um, inferiority or superiority. There was no resentment. People met you and were, I distinctly remember a man in Cartagena thanking me for coming to his country. He said a lot of the people around the world, they're frightened to come to this country. Bear in mind that this was 1999. Um, when uh, the conflict was at its height and Colombia was about to enter uh, the last round of peace talks. And he made a real point of saying, you know, you've defied uh, a lot of people's bad expectations of my country and I'd like to thank you for, for coming. And I think this is an important point to remember that, that Colombia is a demonized country. Uh, and the longer I spent time in Colombia, this is a recurring theme that I think... Colombians are a bit tired of being regarded as pariahs by the outside world. Um, so before I leave the subject of tourism, you know, just to give a little punt to the Colombian Tourist Board, if I look ahead to, you know, the peace talks that are coming up and the possible, the possible futures for Colombia, as an optimist... Um, Colombia has an enormous future tourist potential. Uh, it has more geographical variation, I think, more regional variation than uh, any other country in Latin America. It has deserts, it has the Andes, it has the Amazon, it has the Caribbean coast, it has a Pacific coast, which is hardly visited or known even by other Colombians, um, uh, where there's been very little inside uh, impact from people going into that part of the Pacific coast, Chocon, um, and very little outward movement either. Uh, so 
Colombia has huge potential as a, as a tourist destination, and I think as a 21st century country, Colombia has, the United Nations has already identified Colombia as one of the seven countries that it wants to see really ramp up its future food production. When we look at world food shortages, I think there are seven countries that have been identified as uh, countries that could, under certain circumstances, uh, be a real contributor to addressing the, the, uh, the coming gap between the demand for, for, for food and the supply of food. In the Colombian case, of course, that's dependent upon uh, peace in the countryside, so that um, in the, the investment and the development that would need to take place can take place. Um, but I think also Colombia, something I think that perhaps is overlooked, that was pointed out to me a couple of times when I was in Colombia, that when you look at that country as what it has to give to the 21st century, um, which countries will make real contributions to global culture in the 21st century. I think the multicultural heritage of Colombia is not something that's often discussed, but the Colombians, as well as, for, you know, it might sound trivial, but on the subject of music, um, the Colombians are known you know, for a wide variety of music that are produced in Colombia, but they're also great assimilators of other people's music. And spending time there, one of the things that struck me was uh, it's a, it's a tango-loving country. If you go to Medellin, it's probably you have more tango lovers in Medellin than you do anywhere else outside Argentina. Uh, there's a lot of rock bands, good rock bands, heavy metal bands um, in Colombia, uh, which I think are underappreciated. And what, this, what I think this points to um, is the sense that there's a huge variety of uh, races, ethnicities, a huge class differential uh, in Colombia, which of course needs to be addressed, but when you look at what the consequences of that have been, you, you, it's really a question, when you bring this country together, there are so many varieties, uh, and the, the project of building democratic participation in a country like Colombia. Um, it is, of course, a challenge, but I think the rewards are great. Um, and as I say, that, uh, that multiculturalism uh, is something that, you know, countries like Britain still struggling with uh, the idea of uh, multiple uh, identities, I suppose. Um, and, in, and perhaps looking back in years to come, Colombia will be seen as a country in which... Um, which really had a multicultural perspective from quite early on. Um, anyway, so I was in Colombia as a tourist for a while. I came back to London, uh, did an A-level Spanish course at the City Lit, uh, and I was really, at that time, fascinated by Colombia. I really wanted to go back. I'd really enjoyed my time there. So I did this course here uh, at the City Lit, and I went back in 2001... Um, which was when those peace talks... Sorry, I did say earlier they, the peace talks were in 99. They weren't. They were 2001. Um, so that was an interesting time to be in Colombia. I got a job as an English teacher at one of the universities in Bogotá, which is not necessarily um, something you'd, you'd imagine would provide valuable insights into, uh, into Colombia, but I think it did in some interesting ways. Something I found out more recently that after Colombia got its independence from Spain, there was a real project to turn Colombia into an English-speaking country. Uh, 
I don't know if you know Colombian history at all, General Santander, who was you know, the, the right-hand man to, to Bolivar, the great liberator, he, he was very keen on this idea that Colombia should become an English-speaking country. And it was only Bolivar who convinced him otherwise. Um, of course, once independence was secured, during the 19th century, Colombia became a really very insular place, uh, racked by civil war for the best part of the 19th century, uh, a country in which very few people left and very few people um, came, went there either. There, with some exceptions in, in the middle of the century, there was some German uh, immigration to Colombia, but really quite an insular place uh, in which in the, the, you know, English, there wasn't much demand for English teachers, I imagine. Um, when you look at, in the 20th century, as Colombia opens up to world markets, um, as it realizes, it's really coffee that drives its integration into world markets in the 1920s. And that's when you find the upper class in Colombia really latching on to English examples of uh, upper class good taste. Uh, and that's when you find people wanting to learn British English, uh, taking to games like golf. Uh, it was, funny enough, the current president's great uncle, I don't know if you're aware, but his great uncle, um, Santos, was president of Colombia in the late 30s and 40s. And he apparently was the first person to start drinking whiskey in Colombia. Um, today, the Colombians are big drinkers of whiskey. Um, uh, but when I was teaching English there, the, the, um, the principal reason, I suppose, most of my students wanted to learn English is because they wanted to get to an American university. Um, and, of course, uh, most of them hailed from middle-class, upper-class families. And it was striking as an English teacher to see what their attitudes to the United States were. Uh, and I think perhaps this is part of the demonizing, you know, why the demonization of Colombia as, you know, the... the, uh, the the source of all the world's cocaine and, you know, a gorilla-racked hellhole, blah, blah, blah. Why that stings so much, I think, is perhaps because Colombia has always been a very uh, loyal follower of the Washington model. Um, it's not often appreciated that the Colombian government has always followed uh, exactly what the, the international financial organizations suggested. Uh, the Colombian government never had a debt crisis, as other Latin American countries did in the 80s. Um, and I think this is an important thing to bear in mind, uh, especially when, when considering uh, how Colombians respond to outsiders' appreciation of their country. That there always has, especially among the better educated, more privileged sections of Colombian society... Uh, been a real strong desire to emulate the American model. Um, I think that this has had some negative effects. And a story I heard when I was last there, a friend of mine told me that he'd been talking to some Colombian businessmen, uh, and he was saying to them that he'd just returned from the States, uh, and he'd noticed there was a very successful chain of fruit juice shops across the states, they were selling fresh tropical juices. And my friend said to these Colombian businessmen, you know, Colombia is such a one, you know, produces such a variety of fruit juices, surely 
you know, this is something that you need to be getting involved in. And one of the Colombian businessmen said, yes, you're right. Perhaps we should get onto this American company and see if we can open a franchise down here in Bogota. And my friend said, well, that's not really the point I'm making. You know, there's no reason why you should allow the Americans to run a tropical fruit business. The point I'm making is you could probably do it better than them. You can be challenging them. This is something which is one of your strengths. And what the point my friend was drawing from that is that there was an instinctive sense of following the American lead, even when Colombians had every right to say, we can actually do this better than the Americans. What do the Americans know about tropical juices? We're the ones with the tropical juices. Maybe we should be running tropical juice shops across the United States. So the point I want to make, a slight passivity, I think, in, in following foreign examples, in this case, the Washington example. Um, and also because a lot of my students went on to international uh, schools, like this one, um, I came away with the sense that they were learning the rules because you know, they were going back to Colombia after graduation to work for the Colombian government, to work for you know, different branches of, uh, of the Colombian government, to work for Colombian companies, multinationals based in Colombia. And there was a sense that uh, instead of observing life in Colombia, uh, they were learning models in the States, learning the rules of understanding economic life and political life in the States and applying those rules at home. Um, Anyway, I don't want to make too much of that, but, you know, that's something we can talk about later on. Um, in the... Something else, uh, an anecdote I'd like to share. Before I taught English in, in Colombia, I taught English in Japan, and it was quite interesting comparing attitudes to the teacher uh, in the classroom in Japan and in Colombia. Um, I mean, it was a very nice experience teaching English, but I did find that a lot of my students, um, there was no automatic deference to the man at the front of the class. There was no automatic deference to the teacher, no automatic respect, which you know, the Japanese had incredible respect for someone simply because you're the teacher. You're the one imparting knowledge. And I found, especially my male students in, in Colombia, they were very... Uh, they were very uh, casual, they were very friendly, very familiar, but they didn't like being told what to do. Um, I don't want to draw too many uh, implications from that, um, but it is something that, as an English teacher, I remember being told that there is a Mediterranean attitude to language learning which um, values fluency over accuracy, uh, whereas the Asian archetypal model approach to language learning values accuracy over fluency. So as an English teacher, you find uh, Japanese students, it'll be a bit hard to engage them in conversation. But when they do talk, they're very accurate. With Colombian students, the problem is the other way around. There was no problem getting them to talk, um, but when you, want, when you wanted to interrupt them to say, well, you should be saying this instead of that, you've made a mistake there, they'd slightly brush it off, and half an hour later you'd find them making the same mistake. Um, another friend of mine, I remember um, he said that he'd, he'd taught in schools in England and schools in Colombia as a secondary school teacher. And I asked him how the students compared in Colombia and, and in Britain. And he said, um, he said, well, they're much more polite in England, you know. Um, 
And he said, I said, oh, really? And he said, oh, yeah, in Colombia, my students, they're terrible. I, you know, I quite often get told to fuck off by my own students. Uh, and I said, well, that doesn't happen in England. He said, well, at least in England they say, fuck off, sir. <laughs> and I thought, well, that is, that's quite a good point, actually. In England, you know, even when you're trying to insult your teacher, there's an, there's an instinctive deference, uh, even when you're trying to diss your own teacher. Um... Anyway, so teaching at this university in Bogota, I got some sense of some of the attitudes of, I suppose, what you could call the Colombian elite. Um, and I once asked them to, to write an essay about the time they were most frightened. It was slightly cruel to have asked them to do that. But the essays that I got back did show me just how traumatized and humiliated, I think, people by, um, in, a, in a country as traditional and hierarchical as the Colombian, the rise of the FARC, the rise of the guerrillas, the threat of kidnapping, uh, and simply the danger of common criminality on the street. This is something that, to someone accustomed to having their own way, to really ruling the roost for several hundred years, it was frightening, it continues to be frightening, and it's also there's a deep sense of humiliation, and I think that drives a lot of anger towards not just the guerrilla movement, but the general criminality and backwardness that perhaps they perceive among poorer Colombians. Um, one story I'd like to uh, share, which I think illustrates this. I went to Cartagena uh, early on in my time in Colombia with a man, a Colombian friend of a friend, who was an industrialist, he was a wealthy man, and he wanted to show me the, the beauty of Cartagena. We went to a big La Popa, I think it was La Popa, in a big church that overlooks Cartagena. Uh, he was inside the church with a friend of mine. I, I killed some time outside, I wandered around the back of the church, and I saw uh, ten empty Coca-Cola bottles, plastic Coca-Cola bottles with the top cut off, that were hung over this wall, and they were all jiggling. It was very strange. I went over to have a look. What is it? And you could see each half bottle was attached to uh, a piece of wood. I looked over, looked down, and there were ten black faces looking up at me. They were all holding these, these uh, cut-off Coca-Cola bottles, all asking for arms, asking for my charity, without showing their faces. It was almost as if they expected whoever was going to church wouldn't want to see their faces. They'd appreciate the need for charity, drop some money in the bottle. But to be truly humble, to true, don't show your face. I was very struck by that. So I said to my friend, I said, you know, come and have a look at this. This is amazing. And he looked over the fence. And his reaction, what he said is, you lot have got a lot of balls to be asking a man like me for money. Now, this man who I was with, I knew him to be among the wealthiest men in Bogota. He was a wealthy man. To find a rich person being so dismissive of someone simply asking for charity and so aggressive was quite shocking. And then their reaction, I, too, I thought was quite shocking because the way that they cowed as if he'd raised their hand to them, ex expecting a slap, and they all ran off. Not just ran off laughing, they ran off fearfully, expecting the worst. 
That was an expression of power on his part. Um, I don't think he ever quite saw how different my appreciation of that situation was to his own. It didn't strike him. But I think looking back, he was probably embarrassed that in, in showing a Western visitor around his second city, showing him the delights of the colonial city, that I should witness this abject poverty. People, you know, young men begging for money outside the church. He found it humiliating. He didn't want me to see that part of Columbia, and that's why he was so angry with them. So, and I think that that feeds into a broader point I'd like to make about not just how, um, I think it's easy to understand how the rise of the guerrillas in a country as hierarchical and deferential and traditional as Colombia was for a long time, what a shock that was to the system. Um, An outrage, essentially. And I think something little appreciated as well is how the role, what cocaine has done to power relations in Colombia. Um, For a lot of poor Colombians, the cocaine has offered a very quick route to money and wealth and influence that otherwise their their parents and their grandparents would never have had those opportunities. Now that's just obviously not to say that it's a good factor. This is not a good stimulus to to social mobility. But you have to understand how, how that is seen for a lot of people who are desperate to rise up, who are frustrated at living in poverty for generation after generation, so a lot of people were quite prepared to ditch whatever moral scruples they'd learned at school or from the church about engaging in criminality. And so it's quite a strange contradiction where you find people who are really quite traditional um, and respectful in the culture that they've learned as poor Colombians and yet have to put that aside, well, ha- choose to put that aside to engage in the cocaine business and to get rich quick. What th- I think that too is a shock to the, to the people who have ruled Colombia since independence, that class of people who have been at the top in Colombia. So what I'm pointing to is a dual undermining of the traditional sources of authority in Colombia, the one coming from this organized guerrilla movement and the other from the rise of they're essentially the nouveau riche, made money, made rich, through cocaine, through criminality. Um, I had another insight into Colombia when I made a documentary there called Resistencia Hip Hop in Colombia. Briefly, I'd, I'd say the reason, you know, when Colombia is a country that is very hard as a journalist, as a filmmaker, as a writer, to engage a British audience with Colombian issues. And that's why each time I've tried to do that, I've, I've, I've tried to find vehicles that would sugarcoat the story a little bit. You know, to, make, to write a book or to make a documentary about the current political situation in Colombia in 2001, 2002, or in 2010 is really quite a difficult thing to do, at least outside a, a narrow um, group of people. That's why I thought through something like a film about hip-hop, I could really do a vox pop among the most eloquent people in poor neighbourhoods of Colombia who really don't have any access. Their voice really isn't heard.
politically or even in the media and to ask them how they felt about the political situation, about poverty, corruption, the guerrillas, the paramilitaries, the state of the, uh, the conflict, uh, about how they felt about their government, how they felt about the United States. I'd like just a few things which I think anecdotes that are striking that I heard while I was making that documentary which I'd just like to throw into the mix. There was one person I spoke to, a rapper in Bogota. He was talking about how he felt that the Americans didn't pay fair prices for Colombian produce. And I heard from him a point of view which I wouldn't have heard, never did hear, a resentment of the United States that I wouldn't have heard it when I was as an English teacher in the university. But I should have said by, from the start, actually, it was a private university. Um, so it was an elite university. I then go and make this documentary. I get a completely different point of view, a completely different attitude to the United States. There was a real resentment at that time among poorer Colombians of, well, firstly, the... Um, the way that Plan Colombia, the American aid program uh, to Colombia, was kind of imposed without any discussion in Colombia. Uh, the way that the Americans imposed their political vision for Colombia without really negotiating with the Colombians. This, this rankled. It rankled with my, my friend when he talked about, you know, we, as Colombians we contribute cheap labor to the United States and we give them cocaine. We give them this drug that half of them deny uh, having any need or desire for, while the others will pay, you know, the exact opposite, paying through the nose for this stuff. I mean, how do we react to this? It was almost like the Colombians had a privileged view to see this contradiction in American culture, half of it uh, denying, uh, clamping down, zero tolerating, the other half uh, that kind of individualistic uh, pleasure-seeking side of America couldn't get enough of the stuff. Uh, and it was an unfortunate privilege, I suppose, for people at the, on the lower rungs uh, in Colombia, in cities like Bogota and Medellin, to, to see that. Um, so I suppose a real sublimated pride, a displaced pride, a perverse pride, in the case of this friend of mine, the rapper, who almost celebrated the exploits. And I've heard the same stories in Mexico, people who almost out of um, some kind of resentment end up celebrating criminality, not because they, they particularly, uh, or rather it became a vehicle for their own resentment, uh, being underappreciated, I think, uh, and walked over, as they saw it, by the United States. Um, anyway, well, I'm running out of time. I want to just briefly talk about... The third stage, I suppose, uh, in my understanding, how, in coming to terms with Colombia, what I learned while I was in Colombia, which is I made my documentary, I came back here to edit it, um, and a couple of years after that, so I'd been back in London for a couple of years, I started working for a human rights organization called Justice for Colombia, which was set up by the TUC and brought in all the British trade unions to try and address the criminalization, the repression of the Colombian trade unions. Now, even after a year living in Colombia and a couple of trips there, I, had, I didn't know anything about this, that Colombia is the most dangerous country in the world to be a member of a trade union. Um, 
And I think that through working for that organisation, I started to see what the official story of Colombia is and what the unofficial story of Colombia is, the convenient uh, story and the slightly less convenient story. When I say convenient story, I mean the story that suggests that the, that the essence of Colombia is that the state is too weak, that it's uh, besieged, under siege, for, or that the principal human rights violators in Colombia are the guerrillas, uh, that they're also responsible for the cocaine business, that if we can only put an end to the, the guerrilla, the, the FARC guerrillas will put an end to the cocaine business. What I saw working in that uh, for Justice for Colombia and talking to these trade unionists going and spending time there um, was a quite different side to the country. So quickly I'll, I'll just pass through um, a little bit of background to uh, the persecution not just of the trade unions but also of all kinds of civil society organisations in Colombia. Um, the trade unions in Colombia go back to the earliest 20th century and that is when you first start seeing communist influence in the unions. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, in 100 Years of Solitude, he talks about the massacre of the banana workers on the Caribbean coast in 1928. Um, and that was, that, that was a, quite a typical benchmark uh, response to the radicalization of the workforce, in this case the banana workers. Uh, I think it was 300 people were killed, although Garcia Marquez said that I, don't, I think it was kind of lost in, in myth as to just what the exact number was. But it's interesting to note that at the same time that massacre of the banana workers was going on in Bogotá, in Medellín, among um, the official story in Colombia, that period before the great financial crash in the States is a period in Colombia called the Dance of the Millions. And that was when Colombia started really enjoying the fruits of this you know, vast exports of coffee. It started industrializing, building a textile business in Medellin. A lot of people were making a lot of money. Uh, it was called the Dance of the Millions. Um, and I think it's worth pointing to that, to say that this isn't the first time that Colombia has seemed to emerge from this great fratricidal conflict has seemed to engage with the world once more. Quite often, what appears to be the good news from one part of Colombia, you'll find in another part of Colombia quite a different side to the story. I'd like to think that those kind of massacres uh, of the banana workers are today a thing of the past, but they are very much a thing of the recent past, because they, they were massacres of banana workers um, in Colombia right up in, into the early 2000s. Um, I'm rapidly running out of time. Um, as I say, I was going to talk a little bit more about the, uh, the time I spent working for Justice for Colombia um, and what I learned about the repression of civil society in that country uh, and to go on and talk a little bit about the peace talks um, and what I learned uh, while in Colombia, you know, how my perspective on the guerrillas and the motivation behind the guerrillas uh, seems slightly at variance with the official discourse. But perhaps, you know, we've got a good 40 minutes to, if you'd like to ask some questions or direct the conversation in a certain direction, 
Um, perhaps I can raise some of these issues a bit later on. So if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to, to answer them. Thank you. Um, what I do, I take questions in rounds of three, and then we have the, the, give Tom the, the opportunity to answer, and then I have another round of questions. So who wants to shoot first? Well, I think it's an obvious question because you just said, but I'm interested in your opinion about the peace dialogues. I don't know. The peace talks. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can answer that first and because in a certain way it's tied to your presentation, what was left out of your presentation, mm -hmm. and then we can go. Uh, well, the peace talks. Um, we've been here before a few times in Colombia. But I think, you know, as an observer of them, it seems the mood is slightly different. People are genuinely more optimistic this time around. And there, is, there are several good reasons to be optimistic. Um, I think the state of the conflict now, both sides, the FARC realize that they're in military and political decline. The army realizes there's a limit to how much further they can go. Um, I think the idea, Uribe's idea, was never to rule out negotiations, but to hit the, hit the guerrillas militarily uh, hard enough that when they do come to, into negotiations, uh, they're in a much weaker position at the bargaining table. I think the army's realizing that the FARC has also adapted to become much more of a hit-and-run traditional guerrilla tactics, much smaller units going out um, They've really hit them and done as much military damage, I think, to the guerrilla structure as they can. Um, from the FARC's point of view, I think it's probably a more encouraging time than it was in, two, than it was in 2001. Uh, firstly, you don't have the... Well, no, you don't have the pervasive influence of the paramilitaries in mainstream politics to the degree you had uh, 10 years ago. Um, and I think that was always a, you know, a, quite a reasonable um, fear that the guerrillas had was that what's going to happen if we lay down our weapons? Especially because there has been, in 1985, there was uh, a similar instance when the guerrillas went into peace talks, they set up a legal political party which was then practically decimated over the next 10 years, 3,000 political activists killed. So the, the FARC do have reasons to be cautious, but looking around Colombia today, the amount of repression of the left of various shades is nothing like it used to be and you see lots of democratically elected left-wing governments around Latin America. So it's an easier time to be a leftist. I think also what's interesting is perhaps Santos realizes that for his to take back and redistribute all the land that has been stolen in Colombia over the last 10, 20 years, he's going to need the army to enforce the laws that he's passed. 
If that means going up to the coast, going up to the Caribbean coast, sending the army in to, to actually by force take back land that has been stolen by corrupt politicians, drugs traffickers and paramilitaries, if the army has to do that, that will be a real test of his mettle and a test of the army's mettle. But you can't ask the army to do that while it's fighting the FARC. To, to take on those two huge challenges at the same time. Um, so, in other words, to advance his political agenda, uh, I think that, that you know it makes sense to to bring this internal conflict to a close. I mean, I could have talked for hours about the peace talks, but um, I think the main thing is that uh, that everyone outside Colombia lends you know their full support, and I think it's encouraging too that. Uh, there hasn't been any outside interference in the peace talks and the agenda set. It very much is a Colombian uh, issue for Colombians to solve. Um, I think that's to the good. Yes, you, you. No, sorry. I think you are for you. Okay. Hi, I was just wondering, um, at the beginning you remarked that the FARC are a little bit maybe misunderstood. I was wondering if you could elaborate on why you think that might be the case. Um, thanks. Okay. I was just going to say, I thought that the analogy that you make in your book about Colombian society being like a two-way mirror was particularly apt. And um, I was going to ask what you thought the prospects were for the situation to change for the people who find themselves on the wrong side of that mirror should the peace talks with the FARC be successful and whether you think that the government will just have to find another convenient uh, scapegoat, as it were, for the, the problems that there are in Colombia that mm -hmm. aren't the FARC. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can answer this too then. Yeah. Uh, so the first one, yes. The, in what sense is the FARC misunderstood? I, I just worry that the Colombian conversation, political conversation, is not, has been, it's become part of this war on terror. One of the consequences of this is to delegitimize those people who are branded terrorists. Now, it's certainly true that the FARC are involved in all kinds of human rights violations to, you know, we can argue all night about to what extent and compared to other political actors. Um, but they are essentially, they have a political program. And I think one of the f problems with the war on terror and the enormous blanket propaganda that comes with it is that when you, you have to sit down so, sooner or later and talk politics with these people who you've been saying to everyone for the last 10 years, these people don't have a political purpose. They are simply the men of violence. Um, you know, I'm not, as a British person, we saw it, I saw it with the IRA growing up, that the IRA was never given... Um, really respect as political actors. That's not to mean that you, you have to brush under the carpet whatever violations have taken place. I think when I say the FARC have been misunderstood, what I mean is you have to understand the situation as the FARC sees it. And you can't do that if you simply label them as criminals and drugs traffickers. The FARC have a political project which long predates the cocaine business. Um, it's, it's something I do talk about in the book. Um, it's a bit hard to go into, you know, to cover all the ground as to what, what exactly the origins of the FARC are, why people feel motivated to join the FARC. Um, 
But perhaps, you know, I'll, I'll just be as quick as I can. The, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, who died last month, he's one of the few historians, one of the few British historians to have looked at Colombia at all. And he talked about the impact of the Cuban Revolution across Latin America from the early 60s, that people believed um, that if you had the strength of character and the will and the idealism and the energy, you could affect a revolution no matter what the political or social circumstances were. And he was making the point that, you know, looking back from with the benefit of hindsight, that was incredibly naive. Now, I think there is a lot of naivety among people who join the FARC. There's a lot of idealism, real burning idealism. And it's quite interesting to look at young FARC recruits uh, and compare the, what they get from the FARC in terms of this huge commitment to a very frugal, uh, often fruitless life, a dedication that's almost monkish. And when you compare that to the, the life of a lot they'd be living if they weren't in the FARC, this is a country which has the highest homicide rate in the world among teenagers. Uh, it doesn't have the highest homicide in the rate in the world in other factors, but it's interesting that it's young people uh, and the life of young people, poor young people in Colombia. Um, when you look at how depraved and depraving it is, it's interesting, and I think it's almost that creates this this glowing idealism. Um, and all I'm saying is, when you if you're going to look at the FARC, the nature of the FARC, I think you have to take into account what that idealism is, where it comes from, what it's addressing, uh, and simply to write it off simply as um, a drug-trafficking terrorist organisation, I think misses the bigger picture. Um, on the subject of the two-way mirror, the, the, there was a, that was an analogy I brought up in the book because I spoke to a man, a British man, who'd been kidnapped by the FARC, in the early 2000s and he described being taken out into the countryside heading southeast from Bogota and day after day they walked and they saw no planes, no telegraph poles, no police they saw, I mean the odd house but there was essentially no state presence for mile after mile day after day and he talked about a two way mirror in which those in the cities, in, privilege, in situations of relative privilege and comfort, see Colombia almost as they want to see it themselves. Um, and it's only those on the other side of the mirror who, who get to see the true nature, well, I don't know if you could call it the true nature, another side of Colombia. Um, so I think your question was, for those on the other side of the mirror, will these peace talks... Um, bring anything of benefit to them. Is that right? Um, I think that's... It really comes down to what you make of President Santos. Um, I found in the book, you know, I'm, I was recording a lot of... You know, I'm certainly setting the wider context and showing that Colombia, apart from its problems with guerrillas and drugs traffickers, it does have, you know, some of the worst rates of poverty and inequality in the world. Uh, this is the context in which these other problems take place. Um, and it's, it, well, Santos, President Santos has certainly said he, every problem that you could possibly uh, level 
uh, Colombian society and the, the ticks and peculiarities. He's certainly addressing a lot of the long-standing claims from the left, I suppose, for tackling poverty alleviation, uh, tackling, you know, improving education, housing, uh, job creation. He's, he's mentioned all these things. He's, mentioned, he's talked about, for the first time, a victim's law, which will acknowledge all um, victims of the conflict, be they victims of guerrilla violence, paramilitary violence, or state violence, which was always in the past something that President Uribe would always deny that anyone was a victim of state violence in Colombia. San President Santos has acknowledged that there have been victims of state violence in Colombia. So I suppose... Certainly the rhetoric is very promising, but in terms of the real wholesale redistribution that you're seeing in countries like Brazil, which are acknowledging that this endemic poverty, that 50% of not just Colombia, but a lot of Latin American countries, uh, Colombia you know, must be um, the most unequal, um, but as a, yeah, half the population living in dire poverty, just in terms of Colombia's business prospects uh, and creating a domestic market that can be a spur to economic growth, there's, there's no... Um, you have to tackle this, this long-term impoverishment of, of half the population. So I suppose the answer is, you know, it's a question of wait and see as to how much he, he, um, he delivers on, on the rhetoric. Uh, and I think it's too early to, to really issue a judgment at this, at this point. But, you know, I'm choosing to be optimistic. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hello. Come on. Okay. Um, I'm not quite sure how to articulate the question, but you, you mentioned um, the potential role Colombia could play in addressing food shortages globally at the beginning of your lecture? Yeah, I, I um, mentioned what, Colombia... The potential role Colombia could play in addressing food shortages, global food shortages. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the United Nations saying that Colombia was one of the big yeah. future suppliers. I'm just curious, um, how do you think that could interact with the current situation in Colombia? You mentioned again just previously the inequality in the country. I don't quite understand how it... You know, I, um, do, you, do you think it has the potential to exacerbate inequality? I, I'm quite curious as to what role Colombia could play in terms of land ownership. Which, which land, whose land would be used to have the potential to exacerbate inequality? I, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's yeah, potential yeah. there well, to... Yeah. Well, I, I suppose this is the, you know, one of the great questions is when, if the peace talks are successful and Colombia can start you know, for example, implementing the rule of law um, in these remote parts of the countryside, getting more state institutions on the ground so you have schools and health clinics and a decent road network, uh, so it makes it easier to do business, easier to invest in the countryside, you know, expand production of the, the huge number of uh, agricultural crops that can be grown in Colombia. The question is what model is followed? Um, there are lots of countries around the world which are uh, great world food suppliers but don't have any kind of social model in the countryside among the people producing that food that you'd really want to emulate. Um, so I think that uh, for, for 
for the long-term you know, peace and development in the, country, in the Colombian countryside, I think that really the key element, as I, well, number one is, is the rule of law and putting an end to the terrible impunity that people have to live with in Colombia. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, assuming the peace talks work, that these sectors of Colombian society that have been targeted over the last 20 years, uh, part of this backlash against uh, the guerrillas and the left generally, those sectors, the uh, black Colombians, indigenous Colombians, the trade unions, the associations of displaced people, um, these people have to be given a democratic space and they have to have a role in determining what this future development and prosperity is, what shape it takes, and who it benefits. Um, because it could just as easily... I mean, the current model, where there are parts of Colombia which are perfectly peaceful, where food production is as efficient as you could imagine, there's huge exports of bananas... From the, from the Caribbean coast to the United States. But when you look on the ground how the people growing the bananas live, what the political relations there are there, who's in charge, who's excluded, and how they excluded them, I mean, there has to be, you know, that, that, it's not just in any, it's not a just situation. So there has to be some democratic opening up to address the the, um, the impunity um, above all. Yes. Yeah. From your experience in Colombia, what was your perce your perception of corruption as a force that is holding the country's development back? In the sense that a lot of people tend to think it violence is the main problem the country is mm -hmm. facing, but. The, if the peace talks work and there is so much corruption in government officials and, and, and public entities, mm. how is that going to reflect on the people on the other side of the mirror? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I understand it, I think when in surveys, when they ask Colombians what their main political concerns are, it's usually uh, public safety, crime and corruption more than the guerrillas or the paramilitaries, it's corruption, corruption, corruption. And right across Latin America, I think, this is one of the, the, you know, the, the key things that you hear time and time again. I think it does tie into the conflict in the sense that, in, for example, on the Caribbean coast, a lot where, which is infamously corrupt, um, <coughs> firstly, the conflict drives a lot of the corruption because you see how cocaine traffickers, the amount of money... Their money buys them political power. They also are able to intimidate politicians um, who then empty out local coffers uh, and as a result the roads aren't repaired and the street lights don't work. Um, and that was one of the... I was going to say, I didn't get a chance to say it, there were two things in the time I was in Colombia this last time. People said to me, there were, you know, twice they said, you have to say what we cannot say. One of them was, on the coast, the corruption here and the intimidation that is meted out to anyone who protests at that corruption. Um, that is why, you know, if you don't have anyone, any organisation opposing that corruption, 
then the corruption just goes on as before. And on the coast in particular, you can see there are, you know, the end, there are economic enterprises that are profitable, but none of that filters down into you know, local government services, getting decent roads put in. And the other thing that someone that was said to me, you know, what you have to say that we cannot, is the international community has to make the effort to legalise the cocaine trade because it's an illegal cocaine business which sustains all kinds of illegal actors. Um, and that's the, the, the thing that's happened in Colombia over the last 20 years. If you, you've, you've seen what were um, purely criminal organisations really being uh, pushed to the sideline. And the only organisations capable of withstanding the pressure from the DEA and all the, you know, all the law enforcement agencies are armed actors. And in Colombia... That ties into the whole political history of Colombia where you've got armed actors who are there from before for very different reasons, but they're the ideal people to protect the cocaine business. So if you legalize that cocaine business, you take the rug out from under, you know, that's a real stimulus to illegality, criminality um, in Colombia. So um, does that answer your question? <laughs> Yes, uh, um, yes, yes. Hi there. Um, you spoke about in your talk about. Can you speak how, louder, please? Okay, you spoke about your talk in your talk about how Colombia, they're more followers than they are leaders, especially in Latin America. More followers than followers than, than leaders. So they like the agenda to be set for them rather mm -hmm. than setting it for themselves. Um, I just wondered if that stemmed from any cultural roots. I'm not talking about the colonialism, but more for their future. So, for example, when they gain economic or independence sorry, from um, outside forces, um, if it's not the US setting the agenda as it is now, it could be Brazil in the future. Is there a reason why they're not willing to speak up for themselves and set it themselves, like say they're not on the far left like maybe Venezuela or, or Bolivia? Um, is there something in their culture that means they're a bit, um, like you say, insular, but also they're not willing to speak up for themselves and what they believe in? by the sounds of what mm. you're implying. I, I suppose what I was pointing to was the tradition uh, in upper-class circles in Colombia of following the, the Washington model, which, as I understand it, that you know, goes back to about the 20s. I think before then, um, there was more anti-Americanism among the Colombian elite. But since the 20s and up to the present day, the Colombian government, the Colombian elite has always, you know, essentially been very pro-American. And that's why most, a lot of Colombians are very anti-Chavez. Um, they don't appreciate this anti-American rhetoric. It probably gets more support, you know, once you go a little bit further down uh, among poorer Colombians. Um, but, I, but I suppose what, what, I'm trying, what I was trying to point to as well is, although we have this impression of Colombia as a country riven by guerrilla violence, which is, by definition, challenging hierarchies, challenging deference. One of the reasons that happened in the first place is because Colombia was a very traditional Catholic country with a very strong sense of hierarchy. Both, uh, and the church and the local landowners really determined, you know, small village society. Those were the two key determinants of, of how people understood things. Um, and even to this day, you might think, oh, in a country which has such a 
guerrilla history, people would be um, would challenge hierarchy. But in fact, the two live side by side and, and feed off each other. Um, I don't know if that quite addresses what you, you were saying about whether or not... Um, Yeah, I, I, I think perhaps, you know, there's a danger of, of being misunderstood. I don't want to say that the Colombians are looking for somebody to tell them what to do. I mean, the overall fact is Colombia's, you know, the United States has dominated society, politics, and the economics of every Latin American country. Um, it's more a question of how you react to that. Do you kick against it? I think the Colombian government basically threw in their lot with the Washington consensus a long time ago. I don't think that's you know, particularly blameworthy, but it's, it's worth noting. Um, if you know, this whole movement towards more regional autonomy in Latin America and less American influence, with Brazil as being the key player, I think Colombia's actually been, you know, is encouraging that. Colombia's been very much um, an exponent of the idea of more regional bodies. There were one or two hands on that section. Yeah, the far back there. Hi. Um, what are your opinions on someone like Antonis Mokras becoming president? And do you think that the people will take a chance within the near future with someone like him? Mm -hmm. um, just for the benefit of everyone else, Mokras was um, mayor of Bogota and he was part of the Green Party, which was not a, an environmentalist party. It was green as in not red or blue, which is the liberal and conservative parties. So he was an alternative to the traditional parties and an alternative to you know, the guerrillas and the traditional parties. It was a new way forward. And in the last presidential elections, I thought it was very indicative of um, how the media works in Colombia. Being in Bogotá and reading El Tiempo and Semana and talking to your friends in Bogotá, you could almost believe that uh, Mocos was going to win the election. You know, all of the, the best educated, most uh, enlightened, liberal-minded Colombians were all said, oh, I'm going to vote for Mocos. Uh, and a lot of them were journalists, so they said, heck, we might win this. And the newspapers were saying he's going to win. And, of course, when the election came up, he didn't win at all. Uh, so, you know, in, in, I think he trailed quite, quite badly. Um, but the rest of the country wasn't particularly taken by Mokus. And I suppose that points to, you know, Mokus was a very modern politician. He's, um, he's a bit like a Boris Johnson figure. He's, he hasn't got strong political affiliations. He's got a very... He, he's got a strong public persona. He's irreverent. He's funny. Um, he, you know, he took his clothes off for a TV advert. He's that kind of guy. He, yeah, he is. He should be teaming up with Boris Johnson. He's in that mould of a post-political politician. Um, but I, I don't think Colombia is ready for a politician like that. And I think people were deluding themselves when they thought they, they might be. But again, the view from Bogota can be very misleading. Okay, you at the back, yeah. Um, I would like asking in Spanish. Is possible and someone mm -hmm. translate? Yeah? Okay. 
Ah, usted habla de una nueva Colombia. Eh, ¿Cómo podemos los colombianos ganar más en identidad, o sea, en fortalecer una identidad que no esté tan ligada con nuestra historia de narcotráfico o de conflicto armado, teniendo en cuenta esa nueva, nueva perspectiva de, de una posible eh, conciliación o paz. Usted menciona a Gabriel García Márquez, tiene experiencia en el arte que hacen muchos jóvenes, por ejemplo en Bogotá. ¿Los colombianos cómo podemos ganar en esa nueva identidad? ¿Qué podemos hacer según su experiencia? Gracias. Well, I mean, do you speak English? Can I address? You, you understand. Okay. So, as I understand it, you're saying, how can Colombians, when you say identity, I mean, show the rest of the world that we have Garcia Marquez and the good things about Colombia instead of the bad things about Colombia? Yeah. Well, I was talking to someone today, actually, about the, my book and saying, you know, the book had two purposes. On the one hand, saying, you know, and people focus on all this bad news from Colombia. And what I want to say in the book is you're focusing on the wrong bad news. There's a whole other lot of bad news you haven't considered. You know, you've been talking about cocaine traffickers and the FARC being the biggest human rights violators in Colombia, <coughs> I'm saying the cocaine business is not controlled by the FARC, and the FARC are not the biggest terrorists in Colombia. That's what I'm trying to say. So it's one lot of bad news for another. But, I, as I say, I was also well aware that a lot of Colombians are sick and tired of, you say Colombia, and everyone, you know, says, ooh, Colombia... <laughs> Or, you know, ooh, scary. And, you know, so another purpose in the book was to say, look, I spent nine months traveling around Colombia. I had the most peaceful time of my life. It was the most, you know, it was a wonderful time. It was, things were calm, people were friendly, they were hospitable. I traveled through all kinds of landscapes, met all kinds of people, and nothing happened. It wasn't a problem. You know, no one attacked me, nobody robbed me. It was fine. So, in answer to your question, you know, I've tried to write a book which, yes, it shows a certain amount of bad news, perhaps the bad news that most people haven't heard yet, but it also tries to show some of the good news. And it tries to show that if the peace talks work, what a wonderful potential Colombia has. Um, and I think without an awareness of that potential, you can't really appreciate how important the peace talks are. Yes, sir. You and then I will come. You and you and then we'll close the floor, I think. You mentioned earlier on about um, legalizing the cocaine business as a possible solution. And I'm interested in views on whether that would actually achieve and how that could be achieved and whether it would be um, a workable solution. And also, um, how, you, how you feel, if it was achieved, um, it would benefit Colombian society. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking more about the main driver against 
cocaine business is not from within Colombia. It's from Sorry, it's not from... Within Colombia, it's from outside, from the mm -hmm. U.S. And if it were legalized, what would the view of Colombia be from the rest of the world and how you think that might benefit them? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the lady at the back there, yes, you... I would like to ask you, wouldn't you agree that this problem that Colombia has is not just like the political mess of drugs has been, but because the political system we have in Colombia and a lot of corruption, people unfortunately have been forced to go to this, to this problem. Um, I agree with what she said. This, what she said is, how can we do that we as a Colombian people um, like have our, our identity? It's not so much that. I think it's the propaganda here, and everyone in the world has put in Colombia such a very bad country. I agree. There's a lot of, I agree there's a lot of drugs, but who is leading this? It's just the corruption people. It's the corruption political system we live. Don't you agree with that? Mm -hmm. And how is that all these people, there's no welfare, so how can you expect them to do well? And I think there was somebody that raised a hand. Yeah, you, and that would be the last question. <coughs> um, Tom, how can... Colombians in the UK and Colombian and, and British friends of Colombia in the UK best support the Colombian peace negotiations. Um, the question refers in part to a small group of Colombians and British friends of Colombia in the UK that I'm aware of, which is called Rodeemos el Dialogo. It's just beginning. It's an effort to try to construct a dialogue and a debate about the peace negotiations in Colombia. But I'd be interested to know your perspective about where, if at all, you can help from from the vantage point that we have here. Okay. Um, okay, firstly on this question of legalizing cocaine. Um, I mean, this is in a whole other kettle of fish. You know, we could, I could have talked for 40 minutes about the politics and, you know, of legalizing cocaine. There are, you know, lots of objections to what a legal market in cocaine would mean, but I think certainly from a Colombian point of view, it would have far more benefits and very few drawbacks. I can't really see, um, well, I don't want to be naive, there probably are drawbacks, but essentially by transferring control of cocaine production and distribution out of criminal hands and into either the hands of you know, profit-driven companies or the state, um, you can then account for where all the money goes. That's the advantage. As it is, you cannot account for where all the money goes and the corruption it does and who spends it on how many arms. It's all unaccountable. And in a country like Colombia, which has, you know, two armed political wings, or has done until recently... Um, the illegal cocaine business will drive that. If cocaine were legal, firstly, you might, when, keep, when cocaine was last legal, because people forget that it was legal um, well up until, well, into the 40s and 50s, uh, and Britain, Japan, uh, and the Dutch, most colonial powers had coca plantations which they then turned into cocaine and cocaine was readily available in pharmacies 
um, well into the 20th century. At that time, coca leaf was grown in 33 countries around the world. Today, it's only grown, really, in three. Um, so I think that's overlooked, the fact that there's no particular reason why a legal coca leaf market needs to be focused on those three countries. Um, I, I, I think that I hope that answers your question that you know what the what the main benefits of legalization would be in Colombia. Sorry, could you say that again? Not controlled by the FARC or any one in particular. I'm just wondering how, how that would actually benefit By legalising it. Well, you know, as I say, by, by, by legalising it, you are taking away criminal funds. In other words, you know, <coughs> money that goes to unaccountable destinations that goes to whoever is prepared to defend that illegal production um, economy. Uh, it's really a question of bringing it all out into the open so that it's accountable as opposed to being shadowy and unaccountable. Well, I mean, President Santos is one of several currently serving Latin American presidents who have openly called for at least for a debate on legalization. You know, when I wrote that book a couple of years ago uh, about the cocaine business, the candy machine, at that time, no sitting president had ever called for legalization of the drugs business. Now, in Latin America, certainly, I think there is more and more awareness. And the key sticking block, really, is what a political hot potato this subject is, mainly in the United States, because it's American public opinion that is the key mover here, and a real lack of political courage on the part of American politicians to start addressing this issue with their voters. Uh, and you see the same lack of, the same cowardice on the part of our politicians, where you have more and more of the experts saying decriminalizing drug use would probably be of benefit on balance to the current situation, and yet no politician still, still no politician being willing to encourage a debate or take part in a debate or to start imagining how a legal market in drugs might work. Um, Okay, moving on, if I might. Um, the second question, I think I'm going to have to hear it again. It was something about Colombia's image um, and going beyond drugs. Uh, that was it. You know, we, if Westerners are obsessed with the idea that Colombia is racked by, um, you know, cocaine-fueled guerrillas uh, shooting left, right, and centre... How can we counter that? I thought, um, I don't have an answer to that, but I did in the course of researching this book, 
uh, heard there's a criminologist called Niels Christie. I read one of his books. He said, I found this hard to believe, but apparently it's true, that today depictions of organized crime, in other words, in television, films, video games, comic books, all the ways in which we vicariously enjoy the drama of organized crime is more valuable than organized crime itself. So in other words, if you take the Sopranos box sets that everyone bought, all those shoot 'em up video arcade games about, you know, cocaine traffickers, uh, all the comic books about, you know, Mexican kingpins shooting each other, uh, all the Scarface posters that are sold around the world, if you add up the value of that market, it's actually worth more than the market in illegal products controlled by organized crime, such as drugs, you know, child trafficking, prostitution. What, what, what are we supposed to draw from this? That we have this amazing fascination, rather a perverse fascination with organized crime, to such an extent that we can, you know, we lose sight of, it's, it's, our fascination is bigger than the thing itself. In those circumstances, I think perhaps there is a move. Colombia is, over time, Colombia is becoming more peaceful. More people will visit Colombia. There will be more investment in Colombia. Um, and people's fear of Colombia will grow less. Uh, I don't think there's any one policy you can put in place to address that, address people's perceptions of a country. Um, but I think it will change over time. Um, and the last question international support for peace talks um, well I mean it would be good to just get more people to understand what's at stake, who the actors are just a general increase in people's understanding of Colombia to get more engaged with it but um, you know how you encourage that engagement I mean on the one hand if you have generation of Westerners who have this fascination with organized crime and still think that Pablo Escobar is ruling the streets of Medellin. Um, <coughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure how you overcome those, those misconceptions, but again, I think that process is in train at the moment as you see more tourists going to Colombia um, and more inward investment. I think, you know, I did make the point in the talk that it's not just foreign misperception of Colombia. I don't think many Colombians acknowledge that it, it does have a closed history. Um, Japan has a closed history for much of its history. It was closed to outside influence. Not many people went in, not many people came out. Colombia has had that over the last 30 years simply because most outsiders were too poor, uh, too fearful, uh, and a lot of Colombians were too poor to leave, or left because they were so poor. Um, but I think um, it's, a, it's a two-way street, and, um, and I think perhaps that, you know, there, there will be more engagement with the outside world, there'll be more conversation, more than likely more conversation as this regional integration process takes place in Latin America. There'll be more communication between Latin American countries. 
Again, it's striking that you know, a lot of other Latin Americans don't know much about the Colombian situation. Um, and that's probably the key relationship to encourage, um, rather than, I think, you know, the relationship between us and Colombia. You know, Britain is a long way away. I think, you know, if what Colombia is to, if we're to encourage better relationships between con- Colombia and other countries, it should start with the neighbours uh, and other Latin American countries. Um, and certainly you see that on an informal basis in the universities in Colombia when you, you know, go and see, go and hang out with students in Colombia, you can see there is a real Latino uh, solidarity. But um, that doesn't really translate into cheap flights around Latin America. It's still cheaper to fly to Miami. Anyway, that too is another a big subject that uh, it's hard to address in such a short period of time. Okay, um, that's all we have time for uh, this evening. I think there have been plenty of interesting questions and answers and a fascinating presentation. Thank you very much, and thank you again, all of you, for coming.